This is Edge of the Box, a podcast brought to you by whoscored.com. Hello, welcome back to the Edge of the Box podcast, a podcast by whoscored.com in association with Bet Victor. I'm your host, Dan Bardell, joined by Whoscored's very own Josh Wright, and Jonathan Wilson is back as well. I think he had a week off, actually, the last time we did do a podcast. Did you tune in and watch, uh, oh, Jonathan? Hang on, that, that, Whoa, that makes it sound like I happened. took a week off. I was, I was rested. You were rested, rested. Uh, going I wasn't available at, at the time that uh, fitted with with Martin's lifestyle. Okay, <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a good time to get rested because then we didn't do a podcast for two weeks. So that's three three weeks off for you. Oh no, you don't seem bothered at all. Did it matter? I, I, I appear still to be here. So I appear to have yeah. survived it. Still number one choice, although I will say that Nubad did, did very well. Actually, he was he was very good the week that he came in. Josh, you okay? Yeah, very good. Feels good to be back. Feels like a long break. Feels a bit weird doing this now, but good to be back. Yeah, we did just say it feels like a new season starting or something. It's been so long since we did one. But let's I'm sure we'll get back in that groove that everyone loves and admires so much. We're going to start with a little bit of England talk. Now, who scored? I've got their best rated 11 ahead of the 2022 World Cup draw later on today. Josh, do you just want to explain a little bit about how who scored have formulated this? As you said, like the World Cup draw is happening later today. Uh, we'll just put together our team and see how it's shaping up heading into the tournament. Obviously, a lot of things can change, but we've used uh, ratings from England's competitive games from World Cup, World Cup qualification and Euro 2020 to put together a team. And I think I think it's actually pretty spot on. I think it's also quite... I'll run through the team in a second, but it's quite nice that Harry Kane is the top-rated player, but Harry Maguire, who has obviously come under quite a lot of flat, quite unfair in an England shirt, but... He's actually England's second top-rated player in that time, but so I'll run run through it, run through it from the start. It's Jordan Pickford in goal, I think. Um, like Maguire, he now has Im- Im- well, as far as Southgate's concerned, he has immense credit in the bank. I don't think anyone can really doubt Pickford's performances for England after what he did it in the Euros. Uh, the back four is Kieran Trippier at right back. Um, even though obviously there's going to be calls for Reese James and Trent Alexander-Arnold, I think. I wouldn't be surprised if Trippier starts again in Qatar. We've well, England have only got two more games until that tournament starts, and I don't think that's really enough time for there to be many, many changes. Um, the centre-back pairing is Harry Maguire. As I said, he's the second top-rated player in this in this time. And the other one is maybe a bit of a surprise, but Tyrone Mings is there. To be fair to him, he hasn't done a lot wrong for it in an England shirt. Obviously, he scored in midweek, which doesn't count to this, but he hasn't done a lot wrong for England. And then the left-back is Luke Shaw, I guess, Ben Chilwell, if he, if he can build his fitness and form again in time, will be a serious challenger to that. Um, and then moving into midfield, so it's a 4-2-3-1, four, I should say. Uh, moving into midfield, it's Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice. Again, obviously, there's going to be a lot of calls for Jude Bellingham to be that midfield starter, but Southgate's shown that he's incredibly loyal, and I would, I would be a bit surprised if Phillips dropped out. He obviously, he hasn't lost any form this season. He's just been injured. Um, so I would expect to see Phillips and Rice in there. Um, and then we've got uh, Mason Mount ahead of, the, ahead of them. And I guess there's no question now that Raheem Sterling is one of the first names on the team sheet for England. Uh, what he did at the Euros and obviously scored a couple of goals in midweek. He's he's on the right. And then the left is Phil Foden. I guess people will, people will think it's between him and Jack Grealish for the moment. Rashford obviously is is having his own problems. Sancho wasn't in the squad at the weekend uh, in midweek. So it's Foden on the left, Sterling on the right, and then Harry Kane up front. Jonathan, if you were picking an England team for the opening game of the World Cup at the moment, would that be anywhere near what you'd pick? Obviously, Tyrone Mings would be the first name on the team sheet. Uh, it'd be pretty close, I think. I mean, 
Yeah, the the, the 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 advantage thing they have at the minute is they've got so many options that they don't really have to think about this until October. Um, that you pick who's you know you, you can make assessments based on who's who's in form. I mean, I think the right back issue is is complicated. I personally I think I probably would pick Trippier. Um, I mean, obviously he's injured at the minute, uh, but assuming that that yeah, he comes back from that that with 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 no problems, largely because you know I think. Defensively, he's solid, good getting forward, and his dead ball delivery is so good. He gives you that that extra option. Um, I'm I'm not sure it's a clear cut between Calvin Phillips and Jordan Henderson as you make that sound. I mean, Phillips got the nod near as large as Henderson had missed a lot of the season with injury, uh, but again, that's a it's it's a really nice uh, issue to have. Bellingham. I mean, he's still only 18, but yeah, he clearly will be in the squad and he's, he's an option to come in. And uh, yeah, if he starts next season brilliantly, well, well, maybe he does dislodge one of those two. Rice, I think, does look nailed on. Um, I'm not convinced about Mount and Foden playing in the same team. Uh, that, 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 that's the one query I'd, ha- I'd have. Certainly, I think if you're playing a 3-5-2, you can't do that because you have to have two holders, a creator, and then Sterling alongside Kane. And I think he will play a back three against teams where dominating midfield is going to be harder. Um, yeah, that was the policy at the Euros, uh, that he played the back three against Germany and then against Italy. And I think that was probably the right thing, and I think he will do that again. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the great thing is there is a structure. England can play in a, a sort of 4-3-3-4-3-1 hybrid. They can play with the back three. The, yeah, they've, they've got options within a within a framework people understand and the fact Southgate's been there so long it means that there is that slightly more club-based mentality where you know what the basic is and then you can bring players in if if they if they're playing well and you can leave players out if, if they're not so you know, I think England's going to this World Cup in as healthy a position as they've gone to any World Cup in my lifetime. Let's get into the Premier League action now then it's Manchester United v Leicester and this is the Danny Drinkwater Derby, the worst player, except for Jolly and Lescott, that I've ever seen play for Aston Villa Football Club. Josh, Manchester United fan, since we last did a podcast, the managerial search seems to have been narrowed down slightly and it seems like Ten Hag is the number one choice now. What do you make of that? I find it difficult. We, first of all, we put out a poll on our, to our Twitter audience earlier in the week to, just to see, to gauge sort of who people would like to see as the next Manchester United manager. And it was an overwhelming... Uh, in favour of Ten Hag. I think he took 45% of the votes and then Pochettino took 27. And there are some other candidates that have since been ruled out. But I don't know. I don't know if it's part of the reason why Manchester United fans want Ten Hag is because of he carries a bit of mystique. It's, it's sort of like when your club signs a player that you've heard a lot about, but you've not really seen much of that you just get excited by. And obviously there's no doubting that Ten Hag is, has had great success with Ajax. But I think everything that we're told is that he does that within a within a framework of a club where they've got a solid structure around him, and obviously Manchester United are probably the worst club for that in the Premier League. Um, they don't have they don't have any sort of real structure to fight. Even with Rangnick, we were told that he would come in on this interim role and then have a consultancy role. But we but now we know that he doesn't actually know what he still doesn't know what that entails after this season. And apparently, it's it's going to be quite peripheral. So this has been a complete waste of time, pretty much as far as he's concerned. Um, but yeah, with, um, with Ten Hag, sorry, I think it does seem that he is emerging as the first choice. But I would still just be worried about the fact that we don't have a structure around him for him just to get on with his job. I feel like that would be a concern. Also, massive, still massive concerns about the about the dressing room, the mentality of the squad. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm not 
really, I'm not convinced whoever comes in, if it's Pochettino or Ten Hag, to be honest. I just think there's wider problems at the club, but it's certainly going to be interesting to see who does emerge as the as the as the next manager. Pochettino feels like a little bit less of a of a risk, Jonathan, obviously because he's got that Premier League experience. But Josh is right, isn't he? Unless they get the structure right around them, they've had so many managers come in with high reputations since Alex Ferguson. Anyway, unless they get the behind the scenes right, probably doesn't matter who they hire. Yeah, I, I mean, there just seems to be a total lack of football knowledge of a upper levels of a club. Um, the you know the, the Ragnick appointment. You sort of now think what what were the conversations they had before that? What did they think was going to happen? Um, because yeah, Rangnick made sense to me. I mean, we've said this a million times, but it made sense to me if he was then going to step into the background and you'd have had first-hand experience, you would know the squad, and this was almost be sort of a fact-finding period. But it now seems that they see, they, you know, they want him to, to work a miracle in these last six months. Well, he hasn't done that. He hasn't looked like doing that. And so they're like, okay, we're going to bin him off and we're going to abandon that plan as well. Um, Ten Hag's football is very different to the way Manchester United have, have, have to, you know, to what this squad would play. Uh, I'm not really sure what sort of football does seek the score because it's such a sort of mix and match shambles. But for, for Ten Hag to come in and work, he would, he'd need a structure around him. You know, he's primarily a coach. He'd probably need to change three quarters of that squad. Um, that's a process that'll take two, three, four years. And there's no evidence at all that United have got the patience or the will for that. Pochettino seems the, the lesser risk. I think Pochettino's a much more um, yeah, he's slightly more old school in how he manages. He he takes takes control. He he likes to run everything, which is one of the, the points of friction at the end with with Daniel Levy at Tottenham. Um, and the fact that yeah, he knows the Premier League. He's he's worked in, in Spain and in France. He, you know, he's he's got that breadth of experience. Whereas Ten Hag has only worked. I mean, he worked with uh, Bayern's reserve team for a while, but in terms of first team management, he's only done it in the Netherlands. Um, and and you know the. the you see when players come to the Eredivisie, it's a, it's a different league, the different challenges. It's not saying he couldn't adapt, but it, it is a risk. Whereas we know Pochettino knows what the Premier League is and how it works. Um, and I, I think the other thing where United traditionally have always been very good is promoting youth. Well, we know Pochettino is good at that. I'm not saying Ten Hag isn't, because again, that's very much an Ajax thing developing from our academy. Um, but I think the process of adaptation at Ajax is much easier, partly because the level is much lower as they come through, and partly because the structure is so much more uh, streamlined and so much more holistic. Um, whereas Pochettino, I think, maybe could cover over the rough edges a, a, a bit more easily. But whoever it is, it's a nightmarish job because the structure is so disastrous and because the squad's such a mess. I think with Pochettino as well, I don't know whether... Basically, it feels like his stint at PSG has gone against him more than it should, it should have done. Obviously, I think... There's no doubting that it's been a massive, like, massive disappointment. He didn't win the title in his first season. He's going to win the title this season, most likely. But it, every time I've seen PSG, it just looks like he's checked out long, like a long time ago. It doesn't I guess the the squad is just completely unmanageable. There's no way you can get a Pochettino style of football with Neymar and Mbappe and Messi up front. Um, and it does seem. And while Ten Hag stopped going up because of what people read about him and what what he's done with Ajax in the Netherlands, I think Pochettino's is going down, and I think that's probably that's going against him in this sort of public race for the for the United job. But just because you don't have the best of times at PSG doesn't mean that you won't go on to have success. I think we've seen that with Thomas Tuchel. He instantly has taken Chelsea to a new level. Una Emery took a bit longer, but he's obviously just knocked uh, Juventus out of the Champions League with Villarreal. So I wouldn't... I hope this isn't like... that. This period isn't damaging for his like long-term aspirations, but I do think he's been a bit unlucky in terms of 
the Manchester United, a section of Manchester United fans not really want, not really wanting him, sort of thing. Yeah, well, one person Pochettino knows very well is Harry Kane, Jonathan. The Athletic have been reporting that he that Manchester United will have an interest in Harry Kane in the summer. Why on earth would he go there? Well, I, I can see why he'd go there if Pochettino were there. I, yeah, I, if he's not there. But if he's not, I, I, no, <laughs> no, exactly. Why would you do it? Um, I, I also sort of, I sort of think when you get to this stage of your career, you, I, I guess he is desperate to win something. But if you go to, um, if you go to Manchester United, and I, I guess maybe it's different because Manchester United haven't won anything for so long. But players who get to sort of, you know, twenty eight ish haven't won anything, then they go to a big club and suddenly they win something. Is that really them who's done it? Do they really great? take great satisfaction in that I, I don't know um yeah it, it, it would be like me sort of suddenly going to a yeah a dominant team you're yeah, moving from you know the Essex League Division 5 and, and yeah suddenly being parachuted into like the best team in the Premier League uh where you know I batted 11 I don't bowl and they hide me in the field and we win the league well what, what, what satisfaction is there in that for me? Now, Kane clearly will be doing more than that, but it, it, it just sort of seems... yeah. His his chance of sort of lasting glory, the thing that would be really meaningful, will be to win something with, with Tottenham. Now, obviously, you know, it's entirely reasonable he should uh, have a look at how Tottenham are going and see if they really are progressing under Conte. But I would have hoped there's been enough in the last couple of months to think this is quite an exciting time for Tottenham. Um, and I think it's the jump ship to United. It's not you. You don't have that guarantee of titles, so you don't have that guarantee you're going to be challenging. So it would seem pretty much a sideways move. If you went to City, at least it could be okay. Now he is competing for the Champions League. He is competing for the Premier League. He is working with you know one of the greatest coaches of all time. I can see why that would be a draw. Um, I, I don't think it's at all likely. But if you went to Liverpool, I could I could see the attraction of that. But United, it just I don't know. What's he gained by that? You know, his lifelong dream of playing, you know, playing alongside, I don't know, Jaden Sancho or something doesn't, doesn't really, doesn't really make much sense. If he's thinking about perhaps Alan Shearer's goal scoring record, I don't think moving to United accelerates that at all. He scored no. 20, he scored 20 league goals in five of the last seven seasons for Tottenham. That's not, he's not going to improve that at Manchester United. He's never going to have the same on field relationship with another player like he has with Son. Like he still managed to, in, without the silverware, he's still in achieving amazing things at Tottenham. And I don't think that the size of the move that it would take to get to United, I don't think there's any sort of, isn't, there would be no improvement that would match the size of the move. I just don't think, I just don't see, but I guess it depends. Like, he's, is he going to be 29 this, this summer, I think? I guess this is probably his last opportunity to make a move in his with his peak years still to come sort of thing. So I don't, I don't know, I think, but if but there's also the problem that Ronaldo is probably going to still be at Manchester United next season, regardless of whether they're in Europe, the Champions League or not. And there's no way you can have Ronaldo and Kane in the same squad. And if you do sign Kane, that's going to be a hundred million plus move. Is, does that mean you can't sign the mid, the midfielder that they need? Like, I don't know. I just think it's. But, and also, man, you still don't even have a manager for next season. So what happens if that's not really who they want? Yeah, and these deals, they, the wheels come in motion now for those kind of big deals you've seen with previous big transfers. The wheels start turning with, with those moves now. And he, he's worried about trophies. You know, he's going to win the World Cup at Christmas. So <laughs> he's going to become immortal. So he, he doesn't need to worry about club football. He's going to win the World Cup and become immortal. 
form rankings. Where's Harry Kane in the form rankings nowadays, Josh? He's actually top. <laughs> it's, a big, yeah. it's a big rise. He was probably about 350th at the start of the season. Yeah. Well, he's been, he's been a top 10 who scored rated player for the last seven seasons in a row. So he's, at the end of the season, he's finished in the top 10. And he's currently into the top 10 now, thanks to his his form. Uh, so And Ronaldo is actually in there as well, uh, helped by that hat-trick in his last uh, league game. But I'll just run through the top 10. So it's Wilfred Zaha in 10, who probably won't play against Arsenal on Monday, so he'll drop out. Uh, Andy Robertson is in at nine. Uh, then he's followed by Trent Alexander-Arnold, who again won't play this weekend, so he'll drop out. Joel Matip is the third Liverpool player in a row. And then it's Son, Kane's partner in crime. Then we have Sadio Mane. Um, Cristiano Ronaldo, Kevin De Bruyne, Jao Cancelo, and then Harry Kane at number one. Thoughts on that, Jonathan? Delighted to see your your friend and idol, Cristiano Ronaldo, in there. I mean, I've suggested before that goals are overvalued in this algorithm. Let's look at Leicester now. Fafana's back, Jonathan. Really, really important player. Really good defender. Someone who's going to go on and have a great career and probably play at the, at the highest level. He's been a big miss for Leicester this season and they've had defensive woes the entire time. Yeah. Um, I mean, we knew he was good last season. I think this season's really proved it by by how bad they've been without him. I know they've had other injuries at the back, but he, he's he's fairly obviously been the main one. And it'd be interesting to see what difference he makes to, to Leicester's inability to defend corners. Uh, whether just having you know a sort of solid aggressive player there who wins balls in the air uh, whether that does make an immediate difference he's just so good on the cover for Farner because he's got that athleticism and pace reads the game so well for someone so young do you think they'd be higher up in the league if he'd been fit all season Josh oh yeah for sure I think he's so important in many ways like Jonathan said aerially I think I looked and Johnny Evans and Wesley Fafana last season made up 30% of the aerial duels that Leicester won last season and obviously Fafana's not played at all in the league this season and Johnny, Johnny Evans has only started nine league games and he's already he already ranks third for the most aerial duels one of Leicester players this season. So they've missed that from set pieces. Obviously, they've conceded the most in the league. I think it's 20 goals now that they've conceded from set pieces. And as you said, uh, Dan, his, his athleticism will just help Leicester play that high line that Brendan Rodgers likes to do to have someone on the cover because unfortunately, players like Daniel Amate and uh, so and she aren't, aren't the quickest. What's going on, Daniel Amate? What has he got on Brendan Rodgers? He's, <laughs> he's a midfielder and he's been playing all season. Even when centre backs have been fit, Amate has still been picked at centre back. There's something funny going on. He, he knows something about Brendan Rodgers that Brendan Rodgers does not want he out there. Played really well at centre back for Ghana against Nigeria. Okay, uh, in I didn't, two I didn't two playoff that, yeah. games. Yeah, well, you know, the, the combined eleven, which we'll get onto, I sort of. I've ended up putting Amati in there. So I've, I've been. Oh, come like, on, Jonathan. Recently, by life, and now well, you've okay. done this. So, partly it was those two games, and partly the game between these two at the King Power, uh, which is what, November time, something like that. Uh, he was brilliant. He man marked Ronaldo. Ronaldo didn't get a sniff that day. Uh, he might have scored a goal, but apart from that, I didn't get didn't get a sniff. <laughs> Leicester won it four two, and Amati was 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 excellent. Well, maybe I'm being harsh, but I've always got this thing that he's not very good. I don't know whether. Well, he, he he's he's not he's not aerially dominant in the way that you might like a centre back to be, but I think a lot you know alongside a Fafana, that's maybe not not so important. And it, you know, it clearly hasn't worked for them this season, has it? You know, nah. the, the stats show it hasn't. But maybe in a different combination, maybe in a back three. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe he can do it. Yeah, bad seasons for both, Josh. It's going to be interesting to see this combined 11. What have who scored come up with? Yeah, so there's only four players that have a rating above seven uh, in this team, which is pretty terrible. And and three of them are barely scraping above that. Um, so I'll, I'll just run through it. It's a 4-3-2-1 formation. We've got David De Gea in goal. I think 
Um, it's a tight one, to be fair, between him and Kasper Schmeichel. But I think David De Gea, it's, it's a bit unfortunate for De Gea. He's come back to his best form in years and Luis Enrique has dropped him from the squad. Not because of that, but just because of uh, stylistically, he's not not very good at playing out from the back. But yeah, well, I think stylistically, he doesn't help Manchester United, if I'm being yeah. perfectly honest. I, like, I know yeah. he makes a lot of saves because he's very, very busy. But I, I, I just think yeah. he's part of the problems they've got, in my opinion. I, I do agree. I do think that he invites pressure on the back four. Um, yeah. He obviously makes amazing like hi- highlight reel saves, but I do think that his distribution is really rubbish. He doesn't come off his line, doesn't doesn't alleviate the pressure on the defence like other goalkeepers do. But yeah, he he is in just ahead of Casper Schmeichel. Uh, the back four is Ricardo Pereira at right back. Um, we've got Rafael Varane at centre back for, for for one of the centre backs. We've got Soyuncu, who has really just been the fittest centre back of all of them. Um, apart from Maguire, but obviously Maguire's not had a great season for United. Uh, at left back, we've got Alex Tellez, and then moving into midfield, Wilfred and Diddy would have just sneaked in there, but he's obviously now injured for the rest of the season. We've got Yuri, T- although I don't think he's had a good season. Yuri Tillemans is alongside Scott McTominay and Fred, um, and then moving into the two behind Ronaldo, we've got Paul Pogba and Bruno Fernandes, and then up front, everyone's favourite striker, Cristiano Ronaldo. Jamie Vardy obviously is injured this weekend, so he wasn't considered well it's the classic problem of are you picking players for this weekend or are you picking more generally picking on form so i've got de gea pereira amati fafano obviously doesn't have a rating because he hasn't played uh castagna fred tielemans bruno fernandez is a midfield three and then sancho cristiano ronaldo just because fardy's not fit and i even i couldn't pick patson dacca ahead of cristiano ronaldo yet Although I think Dak has got a lot of promise. And yeah, then, Egan Atcher, although he's been poor this season as well when he's played. <sighs> nah, he's not. And then uh, Harvey Barnes on the left. Fair, fair too. I like, I like it. But yeah, just, just both very underwhelming this season. Both had really disappointing seasons. I think both sets of fans will be happy to see the back of the 21-22 season. We've got a bet builder for this game, Josh. Yeah, we have. In the international break, we've had two winners, uh, not on this show, but two winners. We, on we don't have any winners on this show. <laughs> no. We haven't had a winner on this show in 2022, I don't think. Uh, we've got a four, four-parter for this game. Uh, we've got Paul Pogba to be carded. He's committing the most fouls per game of any player in the Premier League this season. Um, Leicester are also his second favourite team to be carded against uh, in his career. And then we've got Scott McTominay as well to be carded. He's he got, an, he got away with an awful lot of fouls last season, but I think the referees have sort of caught on to that this season. He's already he was booked three times over the course of last last term, and he's already been booked eight times this season. Um, he's he also ranks really high for uh, fouls when attempting to tackle. So and he does love to get stuck in. So we've gone for Pogba and Scott McTominay to be carded. We've got Cristiano Ronaldo as an anytime scorer. He scored in seven of his last. He scored seven goals sorry in his last nine home league matches. And then to, to round it off, we've got both teams to score which has played out in each of the last four meetings between the two teams. So that's Pogba to be carded, McTominay to be carded, both teams to score, and Cristiano Ronaldo to be one of those goal scorers. And that's been boosted from 41 to 1 to 50 to 1, um, which is an industry best price. Very kind of you, Bet Victor. And what have we got predictions-wise from who scored, Josh? Well, we've actually gone for 2-1 to Leicester, which is which is hinges on whether Fafana and Johnny Evans play, I think, that should see an immediate uh, sort of improvement at the back for Leicester. And also Leicester have won their last three against um, United. So, yeah, 2-1 to Leicester, but it hinges on how the defence looks. Jonathan? 2-1 to United. 2-1 to United. And I've gone for Manchester United 3, Leicester 2. Although I think Manu won their last game 3-2, so that feels unlikely that it's going to happen again. But when you're top, you can do what you like. Yeah. 
Let's move on now to the just a minute section. And the first one we've got is Liverpool v Watford for Jonathan, the David James derby. Are you ready, Jonathan? Jerome Sinclair. Yeah, getting, get, getting me stopwatch. Uh, John Barnes. John Barnes. Yeah, plenty. Hopefully you, you two will be helping with the ones coming up because I don't think I've got very much going on in my head for them. When you're ready, Jonathan. Uh, well, Liverpool's form is obviously excellent this year. They only lost one uh, in 19 games since the turn of the year. And that was against Inter when they'd already won the first leg 2-0. Uh, the only other two non-wins in that were uh, two games against Chelsea's one in the League Cup final, which they subsequently won penalties. And the other one against Arsenal in the first leg of EFL uh, semi-final, uh, which they, yeah, they won the second leg. So the form is pretty much impeccable. Uh, Watford's form couldn't be more different, but they have taken seven points in the last six games. And crucially, all of those are coming away games. Uh, so their form does appear to be better away from home. Uh, they did win at Southampton last time. And there was a nil-nil draw against Manchester United. And that, so they, they, they can hold off uh, superior opponents. Like Liverpool are obviously a lot more superior. Alexander-Arnold's probably out for this game. Milner and Kate are a doubt for Liverpool. Uh, and Cooley's out for Watford. Um, Liverpool won this 5-0 at Vicarage Road. And I think they'll win this comfortably again. But I can't see what score I've written for it. So let me just check. Uh, 3-0 to Liverpool. Uh, We've gone for 4-0 to Liverpool. I've gone for 4-0 to Liverpool as well. Thank you very much. Josh, your first one to look through is Leeds v Southampton, which thanks to Jonathan before we came on air, is the Rod Wally Starber. On one hand, I guess the international break came at the wrong time for Leeds because they just won back-to-back games. But on the other hand, it's allowed them to get uh, Calvin Phillips and Liam Cooper back up to speed. Jesse Marshall said that probably only one of those is likely to start this weekend just because neither have played since December. Um, there was more bad news, though. Patrick Bamford looks like he probably won't play again this season. He's out for another six weeks with a foot injury. Uh, Rafinha's back from COVID, which is good. Uh, Matthias Klitsch has been cleared of concussion, so he's an option. And, and Melier should also be fine after he came off on the wrong side of a collision with Raul Jimenez before the break. Um, Southampton didn't really have any injuries heading into the break, but I, they just needed they just needed that break after they'd... Um, they just have been in an awful run of form. After only losing one of 13 from December to the start of March, they've now lost four in a row and have conceded 10 goals in that time. So based on form, it's hard to look beyond Leeds, but I would be wary of Southampton who have managed to recharge the batteries. But still, we're going for a 2-1 Leeds win. Bloody hell, I've gone for 2-1 Leeds as well. Jonathan? 1-1. one. Just quickly before we do your next round, Jonathan, what have you made of Jesse Marshy's start? Uh, pretty encouraging, I think, if you're a Leeds fan. Uh, yep. yeah, they were lucky to lose Leicester, uh, and then they've had the two sort of dramatic late wins, which, uh, you know, I, I, in one way they're unconvincing because they're, you know, they, they are nicked so so late, but it suggests sort of a, a, you know, a spirit there, and I think that kind of win can give you momentum. They certainly deserve to beat Norwich, who may be a bit lucky against Wolves with the Jimenez red card, but, you know, they... they uh, probably only need what, another how many points are the one? Probably only need two wins and two draws, maybe. Uh, so what what are they on? They're on twenty nine points. Twenty yeah. on twenty nine points. So yeah, two two wins and one draw. I think thirty six points would be enough. So surely they'll get two wins and a draw from the last last eight games of the season. Yeah, and the only game you didn't talk about there was Leeds nil Villa three. Jonathan, I felt like that was a little bit personal, but that's not. Well, they got battered in that game, didn't they? Yeah, of course, obviously. Rip. I mean, you're not you're not going to beat the best teams in the world. Exactly, you know, I know. That's how it is. Let's look at Chelsea Brentford now, Jonathan. The Josh McCreckran. I can't even say it. The Josh McCreckran derby. So Brentford are eight points clear of Watford. Um, They have played one game more. 
Uh, but probably, if we, if we saw, say, 36 points as a benchmark, we'd probably need two more wins. So you'd think they'd have enough to do that. But you'd have that run of, of one draw and eight defeats in nine games. But wins over Norwich and Burnley since then. Uh, they did lose at Leicester, which may be slightly worrying. Uh, I think the big concern is they've only scored 10 goals in the last 11 games, and eight of those have been scored by Ivan Tony. but he is at least back now. Plus, they have Ericsson uh, providing uh, dead ball delivery and, and creativity. Chelsea's form, it just feels like they haven't been playing that well, but they've won 12 of the last 13. Yeah, I was talking about uh, Very easy winners at, at Middlesbrough in the Cup uh, in the last game. I think they're, they're probably in that phase of, of crisis where everybody's sort of pulling together still and, and you know, the, the full financial impact hasn't been felt yet. They've largely succeeded by leaving Lukaku out. He may come in with the Champions League coming, coming up. Uh, Chelsea won it 2-0 at Brentford. And I've done the same thing again. I haven't written down what I'm predicting for this, but I, I think it was uh, also 2-0. 2-0 to, che- to Chelsea, I presume. To Chelsea, yeah. Yeah. Josh, who scored? Uh, we've gone for 3-1 to Chelsea. What is this? I've gone for 3-1 to Chelsea as well. Jonathan could be running away with it this week with all our mm-hmm. predictions being the same. This could be the, the gap he's needed to get back in. Burnley v Man City for you, Jack. I have to go cheap. The Ben May derby, it's all I've got. Kieran oh, come on, there's loads. So, Kieran uh, Andy Cole. Andy uh, Cole. Jeez. Dennis Tewitt. Yep. Joey yeah. Barton. Joey Barr, come on. Yeah, excellent work from you there, Jonathan. Burnley, Man City, Josh? Just when it seemed like Burnley were digging themselves back to safety, they've now lost three in a row and are now four points adrift of safety. Uh, Sean Dyche will desperately hope to have, as you said, Ben Mee back uh, this weekend as, as Nathan Collins is suspended. Not that I, I imagine Ben Mee's return will make much difference against Man City. Um, but yeah, he, they would be much better for him there. Uh, John Stones was eventually pulled out of the England squad, so he may not be available this weekend, which leaves uh, Pep Guardiola with a bit of a problem at centre-back because Ruben Diaz is already out. So it could be that he has two left-sided centre-backs and Laporte and Nathan Ake to pick from, which I guess he wouldn't preferably want that. Um, but yeah, Kevin De Bruyne was given the international break-off by Belgium, so he's going to be fresh for the business business stage of the season. Edison should be fine after skipping Brazil duty through illness. Burnley actually haven't scored a goal against Man City in their last five meetings, and I imagine it would be a surprise if they did that again here. City have been top of the Premier League since the start of December, but that could change by the time they play Burnley. So they definitely need a response. So we're going for a 2-0 Man City win. This is an absolute joke. I've gone for 2-0 to Manchester City as well. Jonathan? Yeah, 2-0. 2-0 to City. A little shout for you here. I reckon Fernandinho might play centre-back. If he, did, if he does want the balance, you could see Fernandinho come in against Burnley and play centre-back. The most boring game of the weekend for you, Jonathan. If, oh, this game could be absolutely horrific. It's Brighton and Hove Albion against Norwich, and I have absolutely nothing for this. Chris Hewton. Chris Hewton, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think we, we did him last time, didn't we? Yeah. Garner's a uh, very successful director of football. Yeah, yeah. Right? Techni- is he technical director, director of football? He's Sorry, whatever it is, yeah. Same yeah, one, one, yeah. One of those, yeah. Garner and Jonathan, I mean... Ten seconds on this, Brighton have Albion against Norwich. <laughs> oh, no, I'll speak slowly and try and stretch it to a minute. So Norwich are <laughs> eight points adrift. Uh, we played two games more, so they're essentially doomed. They probably need uh, two points a game from now to the end of the season to have a have a chance of staying up. And been absolutely nothing to suggest that they can do that. Uh, they've lost seven games in a row. Um, yeah, they, they're getting relegated. Uh, Brighton's form is also dreadful. Six defeats in a row. They only scored one goal in that time. So that's that familiar problem of them not being able to to, to take chances. I don't even think they've been creating many chances that last six games. It's almost like they've, you know, they, 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 they've sort of they, they got to a point at which they look safe and and 
Uh, it was also apparently weren't going to qualify for Europe, but everything sort of slowed down and switched off. Uh, Webster, Lalana, Lamptey are all doubts. Uh, Ida and um, Omar Bamidiele are out for, for Norwich. Uh, Zimmerman's a doubt. It was nil at Carrow Road. I think it'll be equally tight this time, but I'm going to say one. One. I've gone for one one as well. I'm yet to have a prediction that hasn't been matched by someone. Josh. I feel a bit silly saying this now. Brighton two, Norwich nil. Yeah, that's, a bit, nice. that's a bit. Two goals yeah. again. It's a bit no, too exciting, that isn't it? Two nil. Yeah. For this game. Yeah, that's not, that's not happening at all. Josh, your last one to go through in the just a minute section is Wolves v Aston Villa, which is the Tony Daly derby. My friend, everybody's friend, the nicest man in football. Did Julian Lescott? For... Yeah, but we don't talk. That's barely right. yeah. We barely played for Villa. Let's be honest okay. about it. Uh, Andy Gray, Andy Gray as well. There's a Steve Frogger. There's a, there's a few knocking around Villa Villa Wolves. I'm pretty sure. Did, Robbie, did Robbie Keane? Yeah, Robbie yeah, Keane ended up brief. Robbie Keane played six games on loan for Villa under Alex McLeish and probably could have won Player of the Year. <laughs> he, he, could, he was definitely in contention. He would have been in the top three. Wolves will be without Real Jimenez this weekend after his second red card of the season before the break. Ruben Neves is also out. He actually may have played his final game for Wolves because it looks like he'll miss the rest of the season. Um, Pedro Neto and Nelson Semedo are probably both out. Willy Bolly, who I completely forgot played for Wolves, has now started back-to-back games for them. So he, that's something to, to watch out for. Uh, Trincao, who hadn't scored or assisted all season for Wolves, came off the bench against Leeds last weekend and did both. So he should be rewarded with a start here. As far as Aston Villa, there's not really much to report. Lucas Digne was returned from injury for France, so he'll probably slot back in at left bo- left back. Callum Chambers wasn't risked against Arsenal last time out, but he probably won't get his place back, which might be a bit harsh on him because he's turned into Lionel Messi recently. Um, Leon Bailey hasn't really had a look in at, at Villa of late, and he probably he might not even make the squad this weekend because obviously he played and scored late for Jamaica late in the week. Um, so it's really between Danny Ings and Buendia who's going to take that last forward position. Neither are really in great side. Neither are in great form heading into this one. Uh, Wolves have just lost four of their last six. Villa have lost uh, back-to-back matches. I guess what does bode well for Villa is that um, the home side between these two hasn't hasn't won the last four. So we're going to go for two-one to Villa, the away side. Jonathan, what's your prediction for this one? One-one. Uh, one-one. Thank you very much. Last one for you then, Jonathan. Tottenham v Newcastle, which is the Les Ferdinand or Rule Fox starver. Chris Waddle, Paul Gascoigne. Well, there's loads, isn't there? Yeah. Moussa Sissoko. Moussa yeah. Sissoko. Spurs uh, finally have won two in a row to end that, that ridiculous sequence of win-loss, win-loss, win-loss. Um, only two of the last eight games have been at home, and they have won both of those. Um, but the game the hung in before that was when they lost to Wolves and were absolutely pathetic. So I'm not sure how big an advantage home advantage is. Um, Newcastle have lost their last two, both 1-0 away at Chelsea, which is forgivable, and away at Everton, which is rather less forgivable. But they've taken 19 points from seven games before that, which have pretty much made them safe. You'd think they probably only need five points in the remaining uh, you know, quarter of the season, which surely they'll get. Uh, Tottenham are three points off fourth. Uh, they've played a game more, but they're still very much in the hunt for the Champions League football. Uh, Newcastle got a load of players out as ever. Uh, Wilson, Hayden, and Trippier definitely out. Shah, um, uh, Shelby, Fernandez, and Dubravka are all doubts. Sassignon's out. Skip and Davis uh, doubts for Tottenham. Tottenham won 3 2 at St James's, but I think this will be tighter. 1 1. 1 1 for me as well to finish the just a minute section in the fact that everyone has predicted exactly the same score as me at some point. Josh, who scored? Uh, we've gone for 2 1 to Tottenham. 
2-1 to Tottenham. We've got Saturday 3pm treble as well. Josh, do you want to talk us through that? Uh, yep, so I'll start that off. We've got uh, Jonathan went for Man City to win to nil against Burnley. As I said in uh, my section, that's played out in the last five meetings between the two teams. I think that's pretty seems pretty much a given and that's going to happen again. Uh, Dan, you've gone for over 3.5 goals in Brentford yeah, v Chelsea. Quite, it was quite big, that does, but Chelsea did go to Burnley and smash four in, so that was, that yeah, was my thinking I think behind that one. Brentford have got one of the worst defensive records away from home this season as well. I think only three teams have conceded more. Um, and we've gone for under 2.5 goals in the most boring game of the weekend between Brighton and Norwich. Uh, both teams have lost each of the last six um, and under 2.5 has played out in each of the last four meetings between the two teams. Um, and Bet Victor have kindly boosted that from nine to one to twelve to one to this weekend, and you can you can find that in the in the description of this YouTube video. That's going to be one that comes back on me. I fear. I feel like you two have gone very very safe. Uh, Brentford don't score goals, so you you look at Chelsea to win that four 0 So Havertz is in good form. Mounts in decent form. I just felt like they might they might smash a, smash a few in Chelsea. Yeah. I've took, the, I've took the the riskiest move there, so that's probably going to cost us. Time now for West Ham v Everton. Oh, my God. Uh, come on, Jonathan. Tony Cotty, Don Hutchison. Well done. That'll do. That'll do us very nicely. Now, Josh, it says here, regrets for Everton in the January transfer window, but probably regrets for Everton in pretty much every transfer window in the last five years. Yes. Um, they're not, they haven't got a great track record of transfers, have they? Um, I just guess when Everton started... This calendar year, they were eight points clear of relegation with a manager they the fans didn't want. They then got a few signings in for Benitez, and then they sacked him pretty much straight away. Then the Everton fans basically made the club appoint Frank Lampard instead of Victor Pereira, I think it was, that they protested against. Bless you. Um, Thank you. The club, the club then backed Lampard with a couple of deadline day signings, who were eye-catching on paper, to be fair. But now Everton are one place above the bottom three and three points clear. They signed five players in January. None of them have made any impact. One of them, obviously, got feel incredibly sympathetic for for stuff that's happening outside of football for Ukraine. Um, but yeah, we looked at the worst rated January signings, and four of the bottom six belong to belong to Everton. Emmanuel Ogazi has only met. So I'll just start from. I'll reveal the bottom six. So it's Jonas Lossell, who's the worst rated. He's had two terrible games for Brentford, and obviously he won't play again. Uh, Amuel Ghazi has only got 11 minutes for uh, Everton. Um, he's the second lowest rated. I, he must be wondering why on earth he's gone there now. Benitez is obviously not there. Then there's De- Deli Ali, who hasn't even started a game for Everton. When Everton signed Deli Ali and Donny van der Beek, I was a bit concerned for van der Beek again because he seemed like an Everton signing and Deli Ali seemed like the player Lampard wanted. But I think how it seems now that Lampard's seen Deli Ali in training and he's obviously... It, I think it just illustrates again how far he's fallen off that he can't even start a game for this Everton team. Um, so Dele Alli's the third lowest rated. Then you've got Chiquinho, I guess, I think that's his, how you pronounce his name of. Wolves is next. I don't. Many people probably don't even know that Wolves signed him in January. I don't even know who, I don't know who that is, Josh. Yeah. That is a made-up signing from you. That hasn't he, been real But he, he's young, so I guess that's one for the future for them. Um, and then you've got Donny van der Beek, who has started, I believe, five games for Everton. But after, he looked promising on his debut, but obviously Everton are just not picking up the results. And then you've got Vatai, Mike, Mike, I can't pronounce his name. Mikalenko. Mikalenko in six, which obviously, there's obviously bigger things for him to worry, to worry about and be concerned about right now. But he, even before, he wasn't getting in the team. And I think, uh, and that's even Nathan Patterson. I was as about well. to say, they signed Patterson as well, didn't they? 
and he's not even played in the Premier League this season, so he doesn't even get qualified for the list. But if you th- if you think that he's been signed, he was signed under Benitez, and his bowl accounts was looked very good for Scotland when he's played for them. But he hasn't even kicked a ball for Everton in the league this season. They signed two fullbacks and John Joe Kenny, who was just sent around on loan um, in recent years, is now the starting fullback for Everton. So, it's, yeah, it's been a disaster really for them, and now that they could really get relegated. I reckon me and you could have gone in as technical director stroke director of football in January and had a better window for Everton. Yeah, because I wouldn't have signed anybody and that would have been better than wasting all yeah, this well, money. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'd, I'd have signed a bad player from Sunderland and there's a lot of choice uh, for an enormous cost. That, that's and they'd, probably, they'd probably feed in quite well at Everton. Um, yeah, I mean, the problem with I, Everton have got this issue. Their, their status is, they're an unusual club in that their status has manifestly declined from about 1990. There's not many teams you can say that of. The, the, in 1990, they were one of the big five who were setting up the Premier League. And now they've become a stepping stone club. And if you are a stepping stone club, you have to be a stepping stone going upwards in the way that Leicester have become. You know, they, they, Leicester are very good at signing young players. They keep them for two or three years. They sell them on at a profit. They reinvest that. And slowly, they, you know, the, the, the league win was a, was a freak, but they're, they're now sort of regularly top six. And that's that's what you can you can look to do, and maybe in time they can become top four. But that yeah, that bridge is very difficult to cross. Whereas Everton don't seem quite to have accepted that, so they're now stepping stone for players on the way down, which is obviously an incredibly costly way of doing it because you have to pay higher fees, higher wages, and you're not getting the fee at the end of it. So you know, you look at the signings of, of Ali or, or of Van der Beek. Uh, you look at when they they signed Hammers. You look at um, yeah, you, you can bring in players who failed elsewhere who were cheapish, as they did, to be fair to them, with, uh, I don't want to say he failed, but he, he definitely you know, wasn't hugely costly, Andros Townsend, uh, who you know, they've now lost uh, with, with injury. Um, same with Damari Gray, that, that they were players with talent who, for whatever reason, they, they, they weren't wanted by the previous club. You could get them cheap. Well, yeah, the odd one of those, you, you can make it work. But just bringing in expensive players... Uh, because they were good and famous or three or four years ago, that's not the way to do it. That's why Everton keep on doing it. Um, and, and yeah, financially they're they're in a terrible mess. I mean, their, their accounts came out earlier this week. Um, they've made enormous losses, which they're putting down. I think they're saying roughly uh, uh, five six. So what percentage is that? Like eighty four percent of their of their losses are down to COVID. I mean, I think that's a very generous way of looking at it. Um, and now that they've lost the, the sponsorship from Musmanov, um, yeah, I, I think I'd be, if I were Evan, I'd be really worried about the status of the club, particularly mm. now they've, they, you know, they, they, they've made the commitment to move to the new stadium, which is you know half a billion quid. Where where's that coming from? Um, and we've seen, you know, with the likes of Arsenal that moving to a new or Tottenham moving to a new ground inevitably places a, a, a restrictions on, on who you can sign because you have to make those payments. So to be doing that from a position of strength is hard enough. To be doing it from a position Everton are in is, is enormously difficult. And I, I suspect that at the very least, the plans for the stadium have to be scaled back. And then they're you know, obviously not going to get the same financial benefits from that in the future. So it's a it's a really difficult position they're in. Yeah, and I, I've seen this dance before with, with Villa. I've always looked at Villa and Everton has been similar teams. If you circle that drain long enough, eventually you will fall down. And I saw it with Villa. They got relegated. There's so many similarities between that Villa side that got relegated and this Everton setup now. So if I was an Everton fan, 
I'd be very, very concerned. The West Ham fans would love to pile on the misery on Frank Lampard. Did I go all out for the Europa League now, Josh? I think so. It's, they've quickly found themselves eight points off fourth place Arsenal and they've played two games more than them. So very quickly, they seem to have slipped completely out of the top four race. And I think if you're David Moyes, David Moyes would love to keep Declan Rice next season. Obviously, there's no doubt about that. And I think the only way you can do it, well, there's two ways. West Ham can just price him out of a move, which could still happen, or they win the Europa League and Declan Rice stays for Champions League football, which I imagine he would love. He would be captain next season. Um, He is really this season, but he would definitely be captain next season. And now they've beaten Sevilla, which I thought they were really impressive against Sevilla in the second leg. I thought... I thought that was West Ham's journey over when they when they drew against um, Sevilla in the draw. But they were really impressive in that game. And I think to have beaten a team who have got so much success in that tournament should give them a lot of confidence. Obviously, you want to avoid Barcelona until the final. Or I think I've got them in the semis. I think it's already mapped out. Oh, I think. Okay, then that is a problem for them. But but yeah, I think they don't have the squad depth to try and maintain some sort of push in the Premier League and also go full strength in the Europa League. And I think at this point. I mean, it would be a shame for them to tail off in the league, in the league, but if that comes at a, a really good run in the Europa League, then I think that's a choice that David Moyes, privately at least, will probably consider. They're still going to finish top top seven, top eight, though, which is still an excellent season, isn't it, Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, they shouldn't get into the fall of the trap thinking last season was normal. Um, I, I think that's a problem we have in football that a team finishes, say, yeah, you look at like Leeds, Leeds finishing were they tenth or eleventh last season? And suddenly everybody sort of thinks, oh, well, that's that's their baseline. Well, no, no, that was an excellent season with the squad they had. Um, and I think the same with West Ham that, you know, finishing, were they sixth last year? Uh, or, you know, sixth or seventh. That's the very, very sort of ceiling of what they can achieve with this squad. Um, and, and, yeah, I, I, certainly if I were a West Ham fan, I'd be sort of, well, let's not write off the league, but let's make the Europa League the priority because that's the fun thing. That's the thing where they could create memories that, that would last for, you know, half a century. That if they were to get to the final in Seville and if they were to, to win, even, even get, yeah, just to be playing Barcelona when you're West Ham, um, even if this is a sort of slightly diminished Barcelona, that's that's an incredible thing that people will always remember. The same as yeah. yeah, Portsmouth fans will always remember playing AC Milan. You know, winning a game away at Wolves or, you know, beating Burnley or whatever, people aren't going to remember that in five years or ten years. Just getting to play against a real, yeah, an absolute giant is 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 what it should be about for them now. Yeah, I completely agree. What predictions have we got for this one then, Jonathan? Two uh, 0 West Ham. I have also gone for two 0 to West Ham, such is the nature of this pod, Josh. Same two 0 West Ham. I don't know what's on full house. Excellent stuff. Let's catch up now with Sam Boswell from Bet Victor and look a little bit more at the relegation picture. Sam, welcome to the show. Let's get straight into it and talk about the relegation market. How are you seeing things at Bet Victor? Yeah, great to be back on, Dan. Obviously, refreshed and recharged after the international break. And some of these teams are certainly going to need a bit of a, a change of fortune, aren't they? Uh, Norwich City, 1 to 100 on, so we can discount them. Uh, Watford, 1 to 6. Burnley, 1 to 2. Everton, 5 to 2. Uh, Leeds, 100 to 30. Obviously, new manager working wonders there. Brentford, 8 to 1. And Newcastle United, who. Funny enough, since the injection of cash in January, are now 33 to 1 to be relegated, having been a significantly shorter price at periods of the season. Uh, bottom three finish, yeah, always an interesting market. Does look like it's going to come down to the trio 
of Burnley, Everton and Leeds. I I don't think Brentford are as safe as their odds would indicate, but I must say it, it's all about momentum, isn't it, for, for a dreadful catchphrasey word that people throw around. And I, I just worry that Everton aren't going to get that momentum. I watched the, the full 90 against Palace before the international break in the FA Cup and God, they, they had parts of the game where they played well, but then as soon as that goal went in, it just it just doesn't look like they're a team that have any kind of resilience to to things going wrong. Um, I I I would personally be a backer at five to two of Everton to get the drop. Yeah, and their away form's absolutely abhorrent as well. And obviously they're away this weekend, so they could see themselves plunged further into trouble if the teams below them do manage to pick up some points this weekend. Although the only playing Man City tells me that that probably isn't going to happen. Any other markets we should be keeping our eye on going into the weekend, Sam? Uh, I'll just touch on a couple. Obviously we've got that West Ham Everton game televised. Uh, Everton big price at fifteen to four, thirteen to five to draw, eight to eleven the Hammers to continue their good season. Uh, and get another win. We've boosted all sorts on the site, so you'll be able to check all those out. And of course, we've got the World Cup draw. Uh, depending on when you're watching this, it's either happened or happening or going to happen. Uh, we'll have loads of specials on the site for that uh, after six o'clock. Do check them all out. Hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. Premier League's back. Can't wait to get stuck in. And as ever, we'd encourage you all to gamble responsibly. Let's look now at Arsenal against Crystal Palace, which is the Monday night football. These two teams seem to be Maraway and Shamak. Shamak, lovely. But don't these two teams always, you would feel like they're always on Monday Night Football at the moment. They obviously can't um, be because they're playing each other this Monday, but it feels like they're always Monday Night Football when it's on. Ian Wright. Ian Wright, that's a good one as well. Didn't care about my Monday Night Football chat. I thought it was Matt, good uh, yeah. Good no, they, they, they do also be on on a Monday, it's true. Thank you. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Now, Thomas Party has made the team of the month, Josh. He was very good against Villa last time out. Obviously, I was at that game. I was very impressed with him and very impressed with Arsenal in general, even though they only had to play in second gear. He's in the team of the month. Who else is in there? Yeah, he's made a, he's made some big improvements, I think, after his first season. I think it was he obviously struggled with injuries. And I think there was that game was against Tottenham where he sort of just walked off the pitch as top, as Harry Kane like, slammed one into the back of there and people were wondering... What, uh, who this guy was, but yeah, he's he's in the team. I'll just run for it, the team of the month. So I said it was tight in the combined 11 with Leicester and Manchester United, but it's Kasper Schmeichel who's actually in the team of the month, not De Gea. Um, and then the back four is Trent Alexander Arnold, uh, Nathaniel Shalab, uh, Trevor Shalabar, sorry, uh, with Kagler, Sanchu, and Andy Robertson completing that. And then the midfield three is Ruben Neves, Thomas Party, Rodrigo Bentinker, Philip Coutinho is in front of them. Um, and then the, the top two is Kane and, and Tony. So it's a 4-3-1-2 formation. Heady Day is a Leicester defender in the team of the month. That can't have happened at any point this season. I, would, I wouldn't have thought. So you well done to him. It says here, why Palace were the real winners of the international break? I'm going to need someone to tell me why they were the winners of the they, international they break. They qualified for the World Cup, did you not see? <laughs> I must have they, completely they, missed that. They, they, they beat Guam and the Solomon Islands in some games. <laughs> and, uh, I, I think the, the point was that for Palace to have had three players in the England squad, uh, okay. I think is 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 massive for the direction they want to go. And I think if you look at in Roy Hodgson, they had a manager that was pretty much going to guarantee not guarantee them, but they had a really good chance of just staying in the Premier League every season. I think they took a bold move in going to Patrick Vieira in the summer, which is a different style of play. There was good things said. It was about also Vieira. about tenth choice. Yeah, that's true. Um, there was good things said about Vieira. There was bad things said about him. At what ha- like what eventually happened at Nice. Um, but if you look at what they've done, and it's weird actually, because I looked at where how many points Palace had at this stage last season, and they, and they actually had more than what they do this season. But I think if you look at the underlying data, I think that you can see that there have been improvements made by Palace. I think if you look at expected goals conceded, uh, it's only 
Man City, Liverpool and Chelsea who, con- who should have conceded fewer goals than Palace, which is really impressive. Um, when you think of all the attack, it's, when you think of Palace, you think of all the attacking players they have. Um, but yeah, so in the international break, they had Conor Gallagher, who okay doesn't play for them really, but he's there. He's he's had great success for Palace this season. Tyrant Mitchell and Mark Gahey. And if Palace can show that they've there's a pathway from them to the England national team or or other national teams, because obviously Marco Lise was called up to the front, the French under 21s as well, then I think that's a real step forward for them and, and who they can sort of attract. And I think with the loan, the loan, the rules around loan si- loan signings changing next year and limiting how many how many players people can just send out on loan, I think there will probably be a new market in which pe- teams like Chelsea will have to sell more of their young players. We saw it obviously in the summer. And I think if that continues again, then Palace are in a really good position to try and pick up more of those players. I mean, Villa with the, I would say Villa with the winners of the international break, not that I'm biased at all, but you know, McGinn scored for Scotland, Cash qualified Poland for, for the World Cup, Watkins and Ming scoring for England, Luca Dane clean sheet for France. I think Villa had a, had a pretty good international break as well. That was what confused me when, so, I, when I saw that. Jonathan, it's up to you to decide then who were the winners of the international break, Aston Villa or Crystal Palace? I don't care. You don't care. <laughs> I'll, ask you a be- I'll ask you a better question then. Patrick Vieira going back to Arsenal, he'll get a good reception, won't he? And that isn't even a question. I've said I'll ask you a better question and then I've just thrown an opinion in. Yes, he should do. He has done very well. I mean, I, I was worried about Palace at the start of the season. I thought they might have tried to change too much too quickly, but it's it's gone incredibly well for them. And the fact they're doing it with uh, young local talent is is all the better. Yeah, I called Palace to do all right, actually, I think in our pre-season predictions, didn't I? And I told you, Brighton, look at them. I told you. <laughs> On the way down again, Potter, complete myth. <laughs> nice to be right every now and again. Uh, predictions for this one then, Josh? Uh, we've gone for 2-1 to Arsenal, but I think it's going to be incredibly tight. I think Palace have shown they drew, obviously drew with uh, Man City. Uh, they only lost 1-0 to Chelsea, but yeah, 2-1 to, to Arsenal. Jonathan, prediction for this one? 1-1. Uh, have I gone for 1-1 in five games this week? Right, it feels like something that you do uh, quite often. Yeah. 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 It'll, it'll yeah. happen sometime. Yeah. <laughs> Law of I've averages, 1-1. Got... I've gone for 2-2. Two, two. I think that'll be a really good game. I'm under that football. I think both teams will, will, will attack and have a go, and that'll be a really good game. So, yeah, 2-2. Two, two. That does us for this week's edition of the Edge of the Box podcast in association with Bet Victor. If you're not already subscribed to our YouTube channel or wherever you get your podcast, then if you can please do that, that would really, really help us out. We'll be back next week to preview the Premier League action once again. Thanks ever so much for watching. Have a great weekend and stay safe. 